speak to you on the subject, what would you do today if tomorrow were your last day? We have read Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, the passage from which this theme comes. I think this is a life-changing thought that I am going to interject into your thinking today. What would you do today if tomorrow were your last day? We often think of people coming to the end of life, but we rarely think of it being us. We think of our friend, a loved one that's aging, but it is quite difficult for us to comprehend that one day will be our last day on earth. Jesus, in this parable, reminds us in the last verse that we are to watch, for we do not know the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man cometh. None of us knows the day of his coming, nor the day of our demise, should that be before he returns. I was listening in the car last night to Unshackled. A man on an airplane was reading his Bible, and the person next to him said, Are you a minister? And he said, No. Well, he said, I saw the Bible and thought perhaps you were. I really need to talk to a minister. He asked him why, and he said, I've just returned from the funeral of my father, and it has occurred to me that I am going to be facing exactly what he just faced. You mean then you're thinking about the judgment? He said, well, I guess you could put it that way. Yes, the judgment. And he proceeded to explain to him the gospel and lead him to Christ. You see, it's good for us to think in these terms. What would you do today if tomorrow were your last day? Verse 10 has a powerful statement in it. After talking about them going to buy, the bridegroom comes, and they that were ready go into the marriage, and then this statement is found, and the door was shut. There is a finality about that, and you call it death, you call it the coming of the Lord, whatever you want to put on it, it's all the same. The door is shut, and it's too late to do anything about sin, about life. The door is shut. Now, when reading this title, whether it was in the newspaper or the bulletin, however you came into knowledge of what I was preaching today, the first thought might be that this is a message to unbelievers. You are absolutely wrong. This is a message to believers. This is a message to the church. All of these were virgins. All, let us say, were church members. They were all listed under the same heading, but five of them went in and five of them were left out. Five of them had oil, five of them had none when they needed it. They all had lamps and they were all waiting for the bridegroom. They all rose to trim their lamps, but then there is an embarkation, because it says there were foolish and there were wise. 
If today I were to break this congregation up and have opportunity to discuss this with each of you, I'm sure the majority would say, I have a lamp and I'm waiting for the bridegroom. The question, however, that concerns me is, do you have oil to keep the lamp burning until the bridegroom arrives? That is my burden. I have been reading news of late that brings this forcibly to the surface such as the heads of three different Christian colleges in the news lately, one in the state of Florida charged with adultery, the head of a Christian college. In the Midwest, one charged with homosexuality. In the state of California, a Christian college where the head was charged with drunken driving, which resulted in the death of two people. Many of us were shocked at reading in a national news magazine some time ago of an anti-communist crusader whom I had met and talked to on one occasion, who had allegedly had sexual relations with one young lady and four young men. 2 Timothy 3.13 says that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. If you think you're in a comfort zone today, I want you to know there is no such thing in the spiritual realm. It is always necessary to look and see how much oil you have in your lamp, whether or not the light is sufficient until the bridegroom comes so that you can go in and not be left out when the door is shut. We have an adversary. Peter says he goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is why my message today, what would you do today if tomorrow were your last day? And it could be. The paper reported that in Miami Beach, Florida, Members of Congress, federal and state judges, appointed department heads, governors, state legislators, mayors, city councilmen, and district attorneys are the bulk of those, quote, buying sex, unquote, in Miami Beach, Florida. Respectable citizens of Christian America the bishop of the St. John's Pentecostal Church of Our Lord in New York City reportedly earned $250,000 a year by having his, quote, nuns, unquote, beg on the streets. He was indicted for murdering and dismembering four women along with his thievery. Am I shocking you today? Good. 
What I seek to point out in my introduction is that none of us are immune, none of us are beyond the realm of falling and of becoming a prey to the world system, the environment around us. That is why Jesus Christ left this parable in one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, Matthew 25, warning us that it's not only important to have a lamp, it's not only important to get it burning, but it's absolutely necessary to keep it burning until the bridegroom has arrived and we're inside, safe in the fold. Since the hour of the original deception when Mother Eve was beguiled by the serpent, the heart of man has been infected with deceit. That's what I see so often in the church, deceit. We come with our suits all pressed and ready. We come in fine dresses and everything looking well, but in our hearts there is deceit. We are not what we appear to be. If God could rip back the curtain and help others to see what we really are, we would be ashamed. At that revelation, Jesus Christ ranked deceit in the same category as fornication and murder in Mark 7.22. Look it up. Check it out, Mark 7.22, same category, deceit with fornication and murder. He declared in Matthew 24, 24, just a few verses before where we read this morning that a spell of deception would characterize the latter times and would lead astray even the very elect. Therefore, we must keep the fires burning. We must keep our relationship warm with Christ. We must not let the world filter in and take away the flame that Jesus Christ put there when we first met him. My soul is stirred today over this subject because it's not only possible for the conscience of a nation to be seared, it is possible for even believers to become used to sin and deception and act as if everything is all right while the name of Jesus Christ is being smeared and his testimony besmirched. The God of heaven knows what is in us. What would you do today if you knew tomorrow were your last day? I want to suggest three things that we would do. Three very important things I believe we would attend to if Today, we knew that tomorrow were to be our last. The first thing we would do is bring our experience with God up to date. Not a person that hears me in this sanctuary would walk out those doors before coming to this altar and before God and before this congregation bring up to date his experience with God. Five virgins were out of oil, right next to five who had oil. That means in this service, 
watching us by television, listening by radio and by tape. There are people who hear my voice that are ready, and there are those that are not ready, and they may be side by side in the pew or at home or wherever the message is being heard. Five had oil, five had none, five had an experience, five did not, five were depending on yesterday's blessing, five had oil for today and went in and were secure. I met Klebe McClary some years ago in Seattle at a Billy Graham crusade. I don't know if any of you have ever heard or met Klebe McClary, but you'll never forget him if you see him. He sort of sticks out in a crowd because he has a patch over his left eye. He has an ugly hook hanging out of his left sleeve. He is deaf in his left ear, and his right hand is somewhat disfigured. And when I saw him, he had a beautiful marine uniform on with all kinds of decorations and stripes. He was something to behold. Cleve McClary was a coach and a high school teacher down south before joining the Marines. During the Vietnam conflict, he came from a 10,000-acre plantation just outside Georgetown, South Carolina, lean and lithe and athletic and vibrant. But in Vietnam, a grenade exploded, blowing off his left arm, blowing out his left eye, making his left ear deaf and injuring and disfiguring his right hand. Cleve McClary needed to get up to McCord Field near Tacoma for a flight to Alaska where he was going to be conducting a 10-day evangelistic crusade. So upon hearing that, I offered him a ride because I was going right by there. And as we visited in the car, he on the right, me on the left, he had to turn his head this way to pick up my voice from the right side. And I met a man who was totally in charge of his life, but he told me the story of how that came about. He was in church in Sunday school from the earliest recollection, but he said, Pastor, I didn't have any oil. I had just been fooling myself, and that's what we become experts at doing, fooling ourselves. We can sit in the same seat. We can go through the same motions week after week. We can even smile. But we're just fooling ourselves because we know that inside, everything is not as it seems on the outside. And that was Cleve McCleary. He said, I had never personally received Jesus Christ as my Savior, although everybody thought I was one of the group. So one night, I dropped all pretense and opened my heart to Jesus Christ in simple faith. I filled up the lamp with oil, and the oil has not gone out. Hallelujah. And Cleve McClary is spreading the good news of Christ wherever he can. But a young man who found out that you cannot depend upon outward appearance, you have to have an inward experience. There must be an up-to-date relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That's why we continually encourage you to be faithful to the house of God, to get in every service possible, to read and pray and get into classes and home fellowship centers so that the oil will be flowing to keep the flame burning at all times. I think I could share this little story with you to help you remember this point. A bachelor moved into a new apartment he was not too good at bachelorhood, so he saw a motherly-looking lady in the apartment complex. I think her name must have been Mrs. Olson, because he asked her to help him make coffee. He didn't know how. So she came into his little pad and showed him step-by-step step exactly what to do to get the best coffee possible. He appreciated it. Several days later, they passed in the hallway, and Mrs. Olson said, How is your coffee-making going? And he said, Well, at first it was really great, but the last several days it's been terrible. By the way, he said, How often should I change the coffee? <laughs> you see... Spiritual life gets the same as coffee, stale, bitter, black. What is it good for? Nothing but to be thrown out and to be trodden under the foot of men. You have to change those grounds every day or you'll get mighty sick of that coffee. Now apply it to the spiritual. We have to be filled with the Spirit daily. We have to have an up-to-date relationship. We have to put new grounds into the coffee pot regularly or we will be bitter too. So if we believe that tomorrow were to be our last day, I believe today we would get our experience up to date. We would change the grounds in our spiritual life. We would make sure there's life there and vibrancy there and meaning there and we're not depending on something 20 years ago but something today that Jesus Christ has touched us today and we are alive today and ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have oil in our land. The second thing I believe we would do, we would be kind and forgiving to one another. The reason I believe that is that in many funerals I have conducted, I have had relatives say, oh, if I'd only known they were going to pass away so soon, I would have done thus and so. There was this hanging over their head, some situation that had occurred years ago. They had never made right, and oh, how sorrowful they were. Well, there's coming a day when it's going to be worse than that, when we stand at the judgment and realize that we did not follow through on one of the most important Christian things there is to do, and that is to be forgiving to one another. I had a lady call me on the phone some time ago asking for verses on forgiveness. I did not meddle trying to find out why, but I knew there was a good reason. So I gave her some of the verses in the Bible on forgiveness, such as Matthew 6, 15, 
If ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Think of it a minute. If you will not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. You can have no better relationship with God than you have with me. You can have no better relationship with God than you have with your wife or your husband or your children or your neighbor or your boss, the people you meet day by day. You cannot get closer to God than you're willing to get with people. If you will not forgive one another trespasses, God will not and cannot forgive you your trespasses, but we grit our teeth and we say, I'm not going to forgive you. I'm not going to do it. And we dry up and the oil flows out and the coffee of our lives gets bitter and nobody desires us because there must be the spirit of forgiveness to one another if we are to have oil. I quoted her Romans 12:14, which reads, Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Bless them which persecute you. I quoted 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we reply quietly. But I'm not going to do that. I've been hurt. We reply quietly. But you don't know what time we reply quietly. If we believe tomorrow were to be our last day, I guarantee you there would be some phone calls and some contacts made today to get the record straight. I read to her 1 Peter 3, 9, and this verse always intrigues me because Peter was the one who picked up the sword and whacked off the ear of the high priest servant in the garden. He was a retaliator. But now he writes these words, don't repay evil for evil. Don't snap back at those who say unkind things about you. Instead, pray for God's help for them, for we are to be kind to others, and God will bless us for it. What a change had come to this man's life since that Garden of Gethsemane or uh, yes, the Garden of Gethsemane experience. He learned the heart of Jesus was a heart of forgiveness. And when he was mistreated, he forgave and he was kind and he said, God will bless you for it. Often when having weddings, I quote this verse to the newlyweds on the platform at their wedding time, Ephesians 4.32. They are there in the bloom of youth and Everything is so wonderful. Nothing could ever go wrong. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. I love to quote them that because they're going to need it. But not me. Oh, she wasn't what she was cracked up to be. He was a phony from the beginning, sold me a bill of goods. Be ye kind 
one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I'd be so bold as to say to some of you who have suffered divorces and you're now in other marriages, you've got mates back there you've never forgiven. You've never asked their forgiveness, but it was his, it was her, no, it takes two to tango. It's never one, never has been, never will be. It's always two. You need to get to that person and say, forgive me. I'm sorry. You've got to settle that account. You've got to get it right. Because God cannot bless you until it's made right. Until there is a forgiving spirit in your heart toward that person. And if you believe tomorrow were to be your last day, you would do that today. You would not let that thing go on. You would not want to stand before God Almighty with that hanging over your head because he has told us that we are to forgive men their trespasses even as we are forgiven by God. Some of you have been maligned at the job. Others have gotten promotions ahead of you or you were even fired and you've held that grudge. You get back there and say, forgive me for that. I'm sorry, I didn't have the right attitude. Forgive me for it. There are children here today who have ought in their heart against parents. You need to get to those parents and say, forgive me, Mom. Forgive me, Dad. I've been a smart aleck. I need your forgiveness. I haven't been the person I need to be, and I've been angry inside, and I want to have you forgive me so I can be forgiven. I gave the lady more than those on the phone, but she finally said, that's enough. Thank you. What ill feelings need to be healed? What if you didn't have one more day to get it taken care of? You might not have another day. The door was shut. Get a supply of oil, will you? Today. The third thing that I believe you would do is you would not put off things of eternal value of eternal worth. Now I'm going to name some of them. You would not put off the biblical teaching of tithing. Because God said to Malachi and to the people of Israel, you have robbed me. And they said, well, wherein have we robbed you? And God had to say in tithes and offerings. You've taken what was the Lord's to spend for yourself. Even before Moses and the law, there was tithing by Abraham. God taught it to the very first father of Israel. Give a tenth of everything to the Lord. Oh, but that was Old Testament. It's New Testament as well. What he would require in the law, do you think he would just forget? It's more under grace, it's tithes and offerings. You haven't even hit the ball till you hit the ball till you start on the 11%. But the, yet there are people who say, well, that's good for others if they believe that, but bless God, I don't believe that. 
You wouldn't put off things of eternal worth like tithing if you felt tomorrow you were going to stand before God and hear God say, you have robbed me, ba 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 but nothing. You've robbed me. You have kept people out of the kingdom of God because you wouldn't give the tithe unto the Lord to win souls, to support television and radio and ministries in the local church. You've robbed me. You know, the best investment is the local church. That's where God expects you to tithe, not all over the world, to the local church. Bring your tithe into the storehouse. Be biblical. And let God bring the blessing. I received the bulletin from Ernie Moe and my good friend in Rockford, Illinois, this week, and I was impressed by some of the statistics he gave about some things going on in his church, which has a Teen Challenge Center there. He said that as he had lunch with one of the young men, he discovered that this fellow found Christ five months in a Teen Challenge home, now in the next phase of training at Cape Girardeau, Missouri six months to go, then he will seek a job in Rockford, and instead of being a prisoner and costing the state $40,000, he will be a taxpayer and a tither. His life is committed to Jesus Christ, and then at the Teen Challenge Center, the state of Missouri will save $160,000 in Missouri Cape Girardeau Center because there Jerry Case, Tracy Miller, and Joe Roberts were placed on probation and doing well, and it spared the state of Missouri $160,000. In the state of Indiana, two or $40,000 was saved by Robert Harris, who came to the Lord and didn't have to spend two years in jail. In Illinois, there was $200,000 saved because of the rehabilitation and the success of Eric Dillon, Gary Mann, Kurt Perry, David Greenlee, and Randy Johnson. Some of them faced over two years in prison, but through the work of the church and the spirit of Jesus Christ, they were converted and are on the men and are working and paying tithe and saving the state thousands and thousands of dollars. What's the answer to welfare? What's the answer to government spending? It's the church of Jesus Christ where people will come to grips with this biblical truth that we are to tithe so that the church can win the world. Then they will support the system and will complement it rather than drawing from it all the time. Best investment you could make. You would not put off the eternal worth of water baptism another day. Well, I just a little, I'm a little embarrassed to get up in front of people. Well, that's what baptism is about. You make a public declaration of your faith. You're not ashamed to be linked with Jesus Christ and his followers. Repent and be baptized. Confession of sins in your life. Do we trust one another enough to say, hey, I've got this problem. Can I confess it and get it right? Watch, therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Big things are happening in our world today, and God wants you to be a part of those things. I was reading one of David Wilkerson's communiques, and he talked about the deliverance of a homosexual, a heroin addict, one who used methadone, a lesbian, 
persons who had hatred of parents, who were united with their parents, alcoholics, marvelously delivered. People are dealing with big things these days. Isn't it exciting that God is touching people? The picture is not all bleak and dark. Christ is moving. Deliverances are happening. Get oil in your lamps and be a part of it. Things of eternal value. Pastor Randy was telling us about the youth retreat, the young man who went there with a bunch of drugs and God touched him, he threw it all down the toilet, told the group that he had 1,000 rock records at home, 1,000 rock records. Came back from that retreat, put them all in boxes and took them to his grandmother's, wanting to get rid of them as soon as he possibly could and he felt grandma would probably never touch them. God is doing big things in lives. What would you do today if you knew tomorrow were to be your last day? I want you to see something in this parable. The virgins all had lamps. The lamp seems to represent the outward Christian life of worship and obedience seen by the eye of man that which the world beholds. All the lamps were burning as they went forth. Get it now. They had lamps. All of them were burning. Outwardly, there was no observable difference among them. Here today, there's no observable difference as we sit in the house of God. No observable difference. But the foolish took no oil with them. There is the meaning of the parable. There is the significant line, the foolish had no oil with them. It is not enough to have been once enlightened, friend. The five virgins acted as if the lamps which were lit at one time would burn on forever. Is that what the devil has led you to believe? That at one time, at some place, you said, Jesus, I'm sorry, come in. And that was the last time you attended to your spiritual needs. That is not sufficient. You must keep that lamp lit. They had nothing for future use. They did not have the renewing of the Holy Ghost that Paul wrote to Titus about in chapter 3, verse 5 of that little epistle. Be renewed in the Holy Ghost. Their lamps burned brightly for a time, but went out. Something like the seed that fell on a rock. They heard the word and received it with joy, but they had no root. It was burned up and gone. Then they faced eternity. They did not keep in their minds the thought that though the bridegroom might come at any moment, yet he might delay a long time. There was an absolute necessity of daily preparation, of constant watchfulness, where they could be on the outside looking in. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamp. Do you have oil in your vessel? Now, if I were God, I think I would have brought my vengeance down upon this earth long before now. But there's a beautiful word in this parable. It says, the bridegroom tarried. And somehow God is holding back. The day of mercy is still with us. Hallelujah. I'm glad. The bridegroom tarried. The time of waiting was evidently long. The first excitement passed away. 
Some left their first love, like that church in Revelation called Ephesus. Drowsiness seized the virgins in their watch. They bowed their heads in slumber. Therefore, I conclude that there are three groups that hear me, hear me today, three groups alone. One is the utterly careless. They don't care what happens. They just seem to think they're here forever, eat, drink, and be merry. That's their theme, the utterly careless of our world. But there are those who rouse themselves from time to time. We see them one Sunday, and then maybe four weeks later, they're around again to give a nod to God and let the preacher know they're alive. They arouse themselves once in a while. The third group we should all be in, by the power of faith and prayer, they keep themselves in the love of God, and they have oil sufficient until the midnight cry comes. Go ye out to meet him! And be assured that cry is coming. Be assured that cry is going to be made. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so that you won't hear that cry. Don't get bitter in your spirit against God and against others. Get it right today, for tomorrow could be the last day. Could be. We need to live with a sense of sin and a sense of urgency. Remember the word of the old song, he will fill your heart today with overflowing, too overflowing with the Holy Ghost and power. Do you have oil in the lamp? Is it burning? Will it continue to burn until Jesus comes as the Spirit of God moves upon your heart? May I encourage you in the few seconds that are remaining in this gospel meeting to come from where you are to this altar and say, Jesus Christ, I break from all that would hold me back. I don't want to miss that midnight cry. I don't want to be left outside when the door is shut. I want to be inside with the bridegroom. I want my lamp to be burning. Would you stand with me quietly and reverently and no one moving from the sanctuary, please, as we respect one another and we respect and reverence God for these few moments?